Walter Balper and the team on the Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is a one-time web blogger for ESPN.com. Also a one-time web blogger, uh, much more recently in this case for SB Nation, and a current web blogger, baseball web blogger, internet baseball web blogger for Fox Sports. His name is Rob Nyer. The topics covered in the approximately one hour, or a slightly over an hour conversation that follows include, but are not limited to, players who had great uh, early seasons, which is to say great seasons as very young players, uh, but ended up not having great seasons as older players. The Sloan Analytics Conference, Nyer recently attended that, what that is looking like to him and how it's changed since he went to the very first one, and also Nyer on um, his move, his recent move to Fox Sports, and why that happened. And also, what former colleague Grant Brisby had to do with it. Great A, pain in the ass. So, Angus Audio, it features Rob Nyer in conversation, and it begins right now. Great. I know that you uh, prefer that, so that it's... Uh, there's no need to... Um, Slow ourselves down. What do, what do we need to talk about? I mean, I mean, what do, what do we need to about what would we need to confer that we cannot share with the public? Exactly, open book. That's what I say. Yeah. Well, uh, to that point, uh, if I ever ask you anything, of course, that you don't care to answer, I think you feel comfortable telling me to shove it. Sure. Hasn't happened yet, though. No. Looking forward to what? Uh, what are you, Portland, right now? Correct. But you're you're not going to be there. Well, you won't be there forever because everyone dies. But um, uh, wait, would you get buried in Portland at this point? Uh, I'm not going to get buried. I'm going to have my body left out in the woods for the animals to eat. No, that's. Uh, is that a thing you think more people do in Portland or in Kansas City, Missouri? <laughs> they do. Are you? What are you doing? Are you rifling around? Are you? Are you okay? Yeah. Great. Perfect. Okay. You you really gonna do? Is that legal? To, the, the thing you're describing? No, it's not legal. The quote you can come to is what they call natural burial, which means it's just what a shallow grave. Basically, yeah, and the the yeah a shallow grave, and uh, I think you have to have yourself wrapped in some sort of special um, uh, biodegradable sack. But it's pretty close. And that's what you want? Yeah. Now, have you made a will? No. Are you going to? Are you going to? I'm not. I'm never going to die. Why would I, why would I need a will? <laughs> doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. No one ever. Young people always say, "Oh, older people should have a will." But younger people, there's never a date on which you become an older person. <laughs> That's right. And so, because it just ha- it just happens naturally, and yeah. so uh, and gradually, and so no one ever no one ever makes a will when they should. Um. Well. Right, but making will, mathematically speaking, does make more and more sense the older one gets. Um, Just like buying life insurance makes more sense when you're seventy than when you're sick than when you're twenty, right. or health insurance for that matter. Well, you're saying having a will doesn't make it doesn't make more sense when you're older. No, it does. Yeah, of course it does. You're right. There's not a single moment when the when it flips. Um, although I guess you could argue that it, there is a moment. You just got to figure out what it is. Maybe it, maybe it goes from, you know, th- there is a uh, a critical mass when it's 
trying to think how that would work. What about when you retire? That seems like it would be a natural. Not, I mean, not that everyone retires even. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, when you retire, you have more time on your hands to think about all that crap. Right. You're more aware oh. of your progeny. <laughs> right. <laughs> Such as they may be. I don't know. Not everyone has progeny. Right. I have no progeny, and and uh, so it doesn't really matter to me. When I'm dead, I'm dead. What, why should I care what happens next? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Right? The universe ends. But you have to specify, uh, you know, like your burial instructions are part of that. So you do care about it to some degree. Um, yeah, I, I care about it just a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, once I'm gone, really the only thing that matters is uh, people being happy. So, or as happy as possible. So, if somebody wants to bury me in a stupid grave site with a headstone, go ahead. I don't care. I'll be dead. Would you? <laughs> would you be? Do you think it would be? No, it would. Would it be with your with your family? Um, I don't know. I, I don't. Really, like I said, I don't care. <laughs> All right. Now we know. Yeah, life is for the living. Right. Yeah. Okay, very good. What are you guys, some what? Are you doing some dishes? I have an ant problem, and I got some water on a sponge so I could wipe up the ants. Okay. Which gives me no pleasure, but it must be done. Mm-hmm. Um, you are going, you're not going to be, I said you're not going to be in Portland forever. You're going to be in Phoenix soon. Correct. And, uh, now wait, did you, did you go to Sloan this year? Yes. Okay. So one of the reasons I assume you're going to Phoenix, uh, and I know for a fact, is that you're participating in the uh, the Saber Analytics Conference. Yes. Yeah. Uh, now, did you? Uh, now, you must have just gotten back from Cambridge uh, as an attendee of Sloan. Um, well, they don't have it in Cambridge anymore. But yes, I was in Boston till Saturday night. Oh, okay. And did, were you a participant there as well? Uh, yeah, I was a uh, panelist. Oh, uh, on what? Uh, on what were you paneling? Baseball analytics. Ooh, there you go. That's that makes sense. As usual, yes. Yeah, and did you did you share any wisdom? Uh, I don't really remember. It wasn't. Uh, I was too busy trying to survive to remember much. Um, the only thing I remember that literally the only thing I remember saying was that. Um. um not many guys get to be the greatest player in baseball history. That's right. the one that I remember. Yeah, that's good, yeah. Well, by definition, not many people uh, achieve superlative level at all. Right. I mean, it could just be one, really. And, in fact, it's harder now than ever. I would assume, yeah. Well, how many baseball players have there been? 15,000 or something? Um, okay. I mean, is that, does that sound right? Uh, I don't know. Probably. Yeah. Sounds reasonable. It's hard to be one of the best out of 15,000. Yeah. Yeah. And the more players are, the harder it becomes. Right. Yes. But I were you saying it at all with regard to Mike Trout? Because I was had, saying that exactly that. Because Mike Trout, Mike Trout is the greatest through age 22, even though he hasn't played that season yet. Correct. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Huh. Uh, okay. Dave Cameron posted that the other day. I mean, by Fangraphs War. Yeah. Mike Trout has posted the highest career war ever through age 22. And yet he has not played his age 22 season. Hmm. So that bodes well that after his age 22 season, he'll be at a similar place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's really good. And maybe the, gr- I mean, he's the greatest through age 22. We know that. 
Well, definitely the greatest through age 21. No one can argue with that. Um, well, but yeah, I guess they could. They could. They probably would lose that argument. Yeah. Uh, um, no, I just I think that it's premature to say he's going to be the greatest player in history because bad things happen to great players sometimes. Um, certainly he's been – nobody's ever done what he's done. Um, but – there have been lots of players who were incredible at age, you know, not, I'm sure Dave wrote this. I know he has in the past. Um, most of the players who were brilliant at 20 wound up having great careers. It isn't like these guys just typically flame out. They're not like pitchers. There's many pitchers who were great at 20, 21, and then, and then, uh, find out because of injuries. Um, and for the most part, that doesn't happen to many hitters, a few. And there are some, I guess the, what had, what, what's happened, what's, what's odd to me is that there have been hitters who were, had their best seasons at, or, or um, one of their very best seasons at that young age. You wouldn't expect that given what we know about aging curves, but, um, you know, Alex Rodriguez had one of his best seasons at age, I believe it was 20, might have been 21. Al Kaline is a famous example. Um, you know, there have been a few others. Um, so we can't just assume that Trout's going to get better and better and better. Um, but hey, well, you uh, you would know more about this than, than I. Um, <clears throat> one of the so when when yeah, Cameron has put these a post like this together, as have other people. Uh, one name that uh, appears on these lists of great players great young players or players who had great seasons at young ages is Cesar Cedeno. Right. I don't, I don't know much about Cesar Cedeno probably because he, he was, he was basically, he, well, he wasn't done in terms of playing time, but in terms of uh, helping a team, he was basically done by 30 and right. it was more or less like he, he wasn't good anymore by the time. Like I, I became conscious of baseball, which is why, and I, you know, I think that you, it seems like because he had uh, better than seven win seasons in seventy two and seventy three, he was twenty one and twenty two those two years. Um, what what was the what's the sort of narrative that accompanies Cedeno's career? Because uh, I wouldn't be familiar with it, and I'm maybe well, some of our readers. Won't. There are are two in the top top of my head. There are two seminal events in in Cedeno's career. One or both of which might have kept him from the Hall of Fame. Um, first, when he was very young, right around those 22, 23 seasons, somewhere in there, in, the, in that range, he was in the middle of an incident in which his girlfriend was was killed, um, oh. and he was charged with murder, and was eventually let off. I believe the charge was dropped. This was in wherever he—I I don't remember where he, where he was from, Dominican Republic, maybe—and. Um, um, the charges were dropped, and he was able to resume his baseball career. It's been said that the incident uh, weighed on him so heavily that he wasn't the same player afterward. I, feel, I think I've looked at this, and the timing doesn't seem quite right, but that's been said. Certainly it was a big part of his, of his life, um, whether it was a, uh, an important part of his career. I really don't know. His career did after those first few years. He, he wasn't the same player. He was still a very good player mm-hmm. throughout the 70s. Um, I mean, I remember him. I don't remember his great seasons. I do remember his good seasons later in the 70s, and he was considered a star. 
Um, and of course, you know, it's important to remember that he played for the Astros. Um, and his numbers would have looked a lot better if he had played in for any other team, almost any other team, because the Astrodome, as you know, was just, just killed guys' numbers. Uh, Jose Cruz suffered from the same thing. Another outstanding hitter. Maybe Jimmy um, Wynn. Did Jimmy Wynn suffer that fate? Jimmy Wynn did, absolutely. Okay. Um, you know, Wynn didn't, he spent a few years at the end of his career with other clubs, but the peak, at his peak, he was with the, the Astros, and he was a brilliant player. Um, you could certainly make an argument that Jimmy Wynn was uh, roughly as good, as valuable in his career as, as Dale Murphy was. And Murphy deservedly has Hall of Fame partisans. Um, Jimmy Wynn doesn't, and it's largely because, um, because of the Astrodome. So anyways, the Astrodome hurt Sedano's numbers, which made him look somewhat less impressive in the 70s than he would have been in a lot of other places. And the other problem was um, in the 19, I believe it was 1980 NLCS, um, he stepped on first base awkwardly um, and tore the hell out of his knee. Um, it was Pull hell of something, whether it's ankle or his knee, something like that. And then he really was never the same player. He had been a great player early on, and then a very good player. And after the knee problem, he really couldn't play. He had he had a real good season. I believe it was an 85 with the Cardinals as a as a part time first baseman. I think I have that right. Um, he could still hit some, but whatever defensive value he'd had, and he was Willie Mays in center field early on, or, or close to it. Um, after 1980, he was still in his late 20s or early 30s. Um, he, he really wasn't anything like the player that he'd been. Then he was just a guy. Uh, so um, that's that's Daniel's career in a nutshell, as I remember it. Um, he had Hall of Fame talent, no question. Uh, but things happen. Things do happen, yeah. That's like what's scary, I guess, about uh, the situation uh, with regard to Manny Machado. Just sort of at the end of the last year, it was almost a non-play when he uh, hurt himself last year. And I don't, I don't know what his status is right now because I'm not good at my job. But <laughs> but if I were, then I would be able to tell you. But it, it, the, the idea isn't how well he's necessarily doing now. It's just that it can happen It can happen like that. It can. You know, it, it's, it's, it's very unlikely that Mike Trout will suffer a career-ending injury because that almost never happens to hitters. Um so we just sort of blithely assume these guys are going to play forever. And in Mike Trout's case, he probably will play for another 15 conservatively uh, years, probably more like 20 years. Um, but it, he might, he, he probably will not still be one of baseball's best players in 15 years, although the talent suggests he will be, uh, just because there are so many there are so many chances, many thousands of chances for him to suffer an injury between now and, uh, what, 2029, um, that would keep him from being at his best. So I expect him to be in the Hall of Fame. I'm not expecting him to be Willie Mays or Mickey Mantle. Not no, yet. That's not very fair. Now, wait, you, you said that there are bad things that happen to, to great players or good players. Can you sort of think, and I don't know if, if Cedeno is the example you would have uh, produced, can you think of sort of a of a prototype for this guy? And as you mentioned, there are more pitchers than there are hitters. Uh, so I guess maybe I'm more interested in the hitters that you would 
that you would... Uh... Well, another great example um, just was in the news because Jim Fergosi died. And I think uh, I think Cameron might have written about this. Um, Fergosi was absolutely on a Hall of Fame path as a shortstop um, in the 1960s. He was a brilliant player. And nobody ever taught... He wasn't a big star at the time. He wasn't on magazine covers and whatnot in large part because he played for the Angels. Um, but uh, Fergozzi was fantastic. Um, and then he got hurt. I believe he tore up his knee um, somehow. Um, but I always get him confused with Bobby Valentine. He definitely tore up his knee, but he was an outfielder. Um, Fergozzi was an outstanding player, um, hard-hitting shortstop. And his first six, seven, eight years of his career, he had Hall of Fame numbers. Um, and then he got hurt, and now he's remembered as a punchline. You know, who did the, who did the, 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 the Mets trade, or who did the Angels trade to get Nolan Ryan? But um, he, he was a great player. Uh, Dickie Thon um, was never the same after getting hit um, in the face with a pitch. Um, I, speaking of guys getting hit with a pitch, Tony Canigliero, uh, I mean, this guy was phenomenal at age I think his first great year was 21, might have been 20. Um, he was on a Hall of Fame path. I mean, um, to the extent that I guess you can be as a 20, 20-year-old 20 or whatever, 23-year-old. Right. I think he had either two or three really good seasons before he got hurt, before he got hurt, um, and then came back and had another oddly enough really great season. But I've never really understood the 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 the, uh, the medical explanation for that because Canigliaro people who don't know the story, he did come back um, and actually had a, one really good season after coming back, and then he went way downhill again. And um, I never yeah. seen a great explanation for why that happened. Yeah, well, so, so yeah, that's interesting. I'm looking at it right now as how, how I know this. He was 22 when he had that terrible, gruesome injury. He came back. He, did, he didn't play at all 68 in 1968. He was 22 in 1967. Didn't play at all in 68. Came back 69 and was... Uh, not bad. He's a league average hitter, which isn't great. And then, yeah, the next season, um, he had a 20% better than league average. It was worth two and a half wins. And this is after that horrible thing, and then he just didn't... I think it, the way I remember hearing that is that, like, he had to, like, squint a lot, and he he was causing... I think he had problems with headaches, and so I think it was like a wear and tear situation overall. Right, that makes a lot of sense. He would have been great if he could have just had to play 10 games per season, but he just couldn't do it day in, day out. Right, right, right. Yeah, it sounded miserable. And then he, I mean, he had a, like, legitimately tragic life, I think, right? Didn't he die? He died of a stroke at, like, 40 or something. He was, yeah, he was very young. It didn't go well. He tried some other things, and nothing ever really worked out. And, and then his physical condition just deteriorated because of, because of the brain injury that, right. that he'd suffered way back when. And so, yeah, that was, that was a rough one. Um, now, you know, those sorts of things are rare. Obviously, Dickie Thon and uh, and and Canigliaro are two of the very few players whose careers have been terribly altered in the last 50 years uh, by you know by being hit by a pitch. But uh, they, these things do happen. Uh, okay, so we got to talk about this because of Sloan. Well, I don't. Know. Oh yeah, because you were talking about greatest player. You were on a panel at Sloan. Now Sloan, I believe, is the or was originally the brainchild of. I, a friend of yours, Daryl Morey, who's also, I believe, the GM for the Houston Rockets. Is Those that all true? all true? Yes. That's all true? Yep. I I have not aired one bit. <laughs> There's been no error. Yeah, okay. Yet. 
And so, so I assume that besides the fact that uh, Rob Nyer is a leading voice in uh, baseball analytics, or the uh, you know the application of of uh, science to one to the sport, um, that knowing that between that and, and knowing Daryl, you've been have you been a participant since day one in Sloan? Um, I was at the first one. I think I've missed I missed either one or two uh, since they started. Sometimes it's just hard for me to. To, to get excited about flying all the way to Boston. It's just tough, especially with spring training so close. But this year I went back. So, so yeah, how long, I've been how, how long has that been happening then? I think this year was the seventh. Okay. I might be wrong. Um, six or seven. And uh, now my impression is – now, I don't, I've actually never been to one, but my impression is that the sort of uh, complexion of it has changed quite a bit um, from being sort of more of a um, – of an academic conference, sort of more in that vein of the academic conference. And I believe now that there's quite a bit of uh, media, not just coverage of it, but media within it as well. Uh, I mean, is that generally your impression? What's been the arc so far as you know? Well, it's a completely different sort of thing. So a lot of the same people who came to the first one, the analytics people were there again this year. So there have been, a lot of the faces have been the same, but the the attendance has skyrocketed. I don't know what it is now. When the first one was probably maybe a couple of hundred, two or three hundred people attending, mm-hmm. and now it's in the the, the, the many hundreds. Um, uh, it was you, when it began. It was in it was held at MIT in classrooms, um, and now it's held and has been for the last four or five years um, in the Heinz Convention Center, which is right, at, as you know, um, connected to the Prudential Building mm-hmm. um, in Back Bay. Um, they get much bigger names than they used to. When it started, there might be a couple of team executives that you might or might not have heard of, would have been the headliners in terms of um, marquee names. And now uh, you know, the commission of the NBA was there, and John Henry was there, and um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell um, has been there two or three times, and Michael Lewis has 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 been there. Um, Robert Kraft, the Patriots owner, is there almost every has been there a few times. So um, they get heavy hitters now, and ESPN um, sponsors the thing, and and that helps. I think that 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 helps bring a lot of the bigger names in. So it it really is has become a little sort of mini industry every year for two days. No, uh, I was reading, uh, or I, I would, I was directed to um, by means of the internet, like some some manner of social media, uh, uh, to uh, a day. Are you familiar with Dan Shaughnessy? You familiar with him? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yep. so Dan Shaughnessy wrote a piece, and this is this this will not be. This will not be surprising to hear from Dan Shaughnessy, but he, he was in attendance at the at Sloan. And um, he was there this year. I know he was there. He was in attendance, I believe. He was. I believe he was. I never saw him. Okay. I think he was. I, I believe you. Uh, there was a John Henry's talk. Um, I was not. I was already heading toward the airport, so maybe maybe Sean. You know, that. I never saw. I never saw him anywhere. But there are a lot of people there. I'm sure I missed lots of people. Go ahead. Uh, okay. Yeah. So here, here's the point, though. Um, he writes a piece that's uh, that's very similar to pieces he's written before, 
Okay. Uh, he is saying, for example, uh, can we uh, admit that some things are not quantifiable? Um, and but then he moves on. He says, hockey analytics? Uh, question mark. Really? Question mark. Uh, and he says uh, he's interviewed Brian Burke, uh, or someone did of, of Calgary, uh, and, he, and he says, I, I think it's there's no place for numbers in it. And then Shaughnessy says, you know why he hasn't seen numbers in hockey? He says it's because it's impossible to evaluate hockey players with data, which is sort of ma- – I mean it's manifestly not the case. Like hockey analytics are a thing that exists. It's more difficult, of course. Um, but I'm curious. I'm curious about this question <laughs> from someone who obviously has, um, has spent a lot of time thinking about um, two things: thinking about the ways that uh, we can ask questions about sport and try and answer those questions objectively, and then someone who also uh, I know likes to think quite a bit about uh, rhetoric and its in prose and its in the possibilities of, of prose composition. I'm curious, from your point of view, what 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 you sort of see, I guess, in in pieces like this, or if you're amused that they still exist, and to what degree you would feel like Dan Shaughnessy, specifically, or a writer like this generally, um, believes believes uh, what he's saying. Do I think he believes what he's saying? I think he probably does. Yes. Um, I, you know, he's written so many columns like that over the last, whatever, 10 years, basically since the Red Sox, um, hired Theo Epstein and, and hired Bill James and started winning baseball games, winning, winning World Series every few years. Dan Shawnee's been saying you can't win baseball games that way, mm-hmm. which is strange. Um, but, you know, the, the, the mind's ability to, to deny what's right in front of it is very powerful. Um, and he'll, he'll go to his grave believing that, that sabermetrics are worthless and people who do that work are, are charlatans. Um, you know, I never met Dan Shaughnessy. Um, a friend of mine told me a story about him one time. He said that this friend of mine was an aspiring sports writer, baseball writer, and he somehow got in touch with Shaughnessy um, just to ask him about the business, and and Shaughnessy could not have been more accommodating and and wonderful. He he had my friend to his home and talked to him for an hour or two about about. That's something not a lot of writers would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're busy, and hey. You know, if you invite every single aspiring writer to your house, that's all you're going to do. But this, but Sean, if you did it, and I've always sort of kept that story in my mind. Um, people are complicated, and I don't believe that they're, for the most part, they're good guys and bad guys. You know, we all have our our strengths and our weaknesses, and um, I try to stop myself when I begin to be judgmental. It um, doesn't always work. And uh, I think last year, or I guess it was the year before, Shaughnessy was one of my, was one of, wrote one of my candidates for worst baseball writing of the year. Um, he just doesn't get it, and I don't think he ever will. And he's so far behind the times, he's a dinosaur, and he's basically irrelevant. And in a smarter business, he probably wouldn't have a job anymore. 
Um, I, I don't know. I suppose there are certain people, certain people among his his newspaper's leadership who who still find that sort of thinking appealing. Um, but you know, I, I read. I'll stop ripping Shaughnessy in a second, but I remember <laughs> after the Red Sox won the, the first World Series in 2004, uh, Shaughnessy and other people wrote books about it. Um, I, I could be wrong about this. I believe Shaughnessy managed to men- mention Bill James once in passing in the entire book, which, granted, I'm biased, but that struck me as odd that she wouldn't spend at least a few pages on um, the role that Bill and other analysts with the Red Sox played in what was clearly um, a tremendously exciting and historic season. Um, and, and I just think that Sean, he just, he just doesn't, he just can't handle it His, for whatever reason, intellectually. Um, he's just not willing to grapple with, with what, how people think about baseball these days. It's, it, it's, I think what, what motivates often People like Shaughnessy. Um, I should say analysts like Shaughnessy because I don't want to class in other people. He's, in terms of people, he's probably a perfectly great guy. Right. In terms of his product, what he produces, you're saying. Right. Professionally speaking, I think what motivates that sort of writing more than anything often is fear. It's the fear of the unknown. And it's the fear of being um, old-fashioned and outmoded. And... and you know, on some level, people like uh, people like that. Um, you know, Murray Chass is another great example. I think that they worry that they're becoming irrelevant um, and obsolete. I worry about it all the time. <laughs> um, why wouldn't they? Um, and you know, the, 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 it's almost impossible for anyone to keep up completely. Um, I, I'm never going to be as smart about. Pitch FX or whatever the latest thing is, I'm never going to be as smart about it as um, some 24-year-old who just got hired by the Rays. I'm not going to be. But it is important to at least try to keep an open mind and not dismiss things out of hand. And that's what guys like Shaughnessy and Chaz, that's all they know how to do. They're they're utterly dismissive. Their minds are completely closed. Um, And you know, sometimes that can work. It's worked for Shaughnessy. He's still got a great job. Didn't work so well for Chas, who now blogs on the Internet, um, and nobody pays him. Uh, not, that's fine. I mean, a lot of great people doing that on the Internet, but I don't think it's what his career path, his preferred career path, it was sort of chosen for him because he refused to adapt. Oh, is that right? I, I guess I'm unfamiliar with the uh, the circumstances surrounding because Murray Chess was – he used to be the guy who wrote, like, the Sports of the Times, right? He did some of that, yeah. I don't, I don't know if he was ever the primary guy or if they even had one. But, he, look, he was a great reporter in the 70s and 80s. He did a lot of phenomenal reporting on the business side of things especially. Um, and then whatever it was, five, ten years ago, the New York Times was um, cutting costs and they, they offered buyouts to a number of their – veteran writers and in all parts of the paper and, and he was one of them and um, nobody else hired him. Now maybe he didn't want to be hired. Maybe he was ready to retire. I don't know, but he's, he seems so bitter that, um, and he certainly has no truck with sabermetrics whatsoever. Um, it's, it's, 
it's more difficult to get work if a significant percentage of the people who might be reading you um, find you old-fashioned. It can work. Like I said, Shaughnessy's still got a job. There are others out there um, who are just as dismissive as Shaughnessy is. Um, but it's, it's, it's going to be tougher and tougher. Well, I think that if you can be uh, – so maybe – sorry, one of the uh, the qualities that Shaughnessy um, pursues or is to be uh, polarizing, right? Um, and that's to – and if you express an opinion, regardless of what the opinion is, if you express it strongly, uh, then maybe uh, – You'll, you'll continue to have readers even if there's something disingenuous about it. Yeah, that might be true. I mean, well, certainly polarization is, is a time-tested uh, tactic for, for attracting readers. Right. Um, what I've always wondered when it comes to somebody in the newspapers is how would anyone know? Um, <laughs> when, you, when you plunk down your dollar for a copy of the paper, um, how, how could anyone know how many – how many of those people are, are plunking down the buck because they want to read Dan Shaughnessy um, bloviating about the the the, uh, the irrelevance of hockey statistics? Um, I don't know. And maybe they maybe they maybe they do sophisticated polls, but I think generally what what happens in the business is inertia wins out. He's there because he's always been there, and certainly he has fans. Um, but um, and the newspaper demographic is an older demographic, so maybe he's right in line with what they want to read. I don't know. It's possible. Man, inertia does does win out, doesn't it? I think you, yeah, you've, thank, uh, thank you, God. Thank God for me. I, well, I think you've happened upon some um, uh, truths, truths of the world, even uh, even accidentally a little bit. Uh, you said the inertia, inertia wins out. You also said that, uh, um, generally speaking, fear is the thing which motivates us. Fear and uh, specifically fear of becoming obsolete, which we all do uh, eventually. How do you yes. deal? Wait, what are you doing to contend with your fear of obsolescence? <laughs> uh, well, what I don't do enough is study. I, I could spend an hour every day just studying whatever new work has been done. Um, I'm typically behind um, the curve a little bit by a week or a month or sometimes a year when it comes to the latest baseball research. The one thing that I try to do, and it's, it's, it's relatively easy for me, I just try to keep an open mind. Um, and I try not to uh, remain too affectionate for what I believed before. I'll give you a great example. Um, And I've written about this a couple of times probably, but back in the 90s, I remember um, watching games on Fox and, and or NBC, might have been NBC, and Tim McCarver raving about the importance of, of pitch framing. And I, in, in my youthful arrogance, mm -hmm. um, I don't, I don't know if I ever dismissed the notion the pitch framing was important. Um, I did say two things. I said, A, I used to umpire games when I was a kid, which is true. In junior high, I umpired games. Um, how relevant that was, you know, probably not real relevant. But what I said was, because it was true, that 
in, in my memory, I, I had called every pitch before it reached the catcher. Not, not physically, but in my mind. So why would it matter what the catcher does if I've, if I've already, I'm watching the ball across the plate? It seemed to me that a major league umpire would be even less likely to need any help from the catcher. That right. he would see the pitch coming across the ball and he would know in his, in his mind. Um, so I came out from that direction and I also thought, but I also said, look, maybe it's happening. It's possible. Anything's possible. But we simply have no way of knowing. We have no data for, whatsoever on this, and so I'm going to remain, at, at best, an agnostic on the subject. Um, but I was gen- essentially skeptical. Um, you know what? When the data came, came along, I jumped right aboard. Um, whenever the first studies came out of pitch framing a few years ago, um, and I said, I, I wrote, I was wrong. Uh, this seems to be a real thing, and now we really need to pay, pay attention. So, you know, if, if I have anything going for me among my, my cohort of middle-aged <laughs> sports writers, it's that I have an open mind on this stuff, and I'm willing to be, willing to be convinced and, in fact, eager. I, I love when new stuff like that comes out. It makes life exciting. Um, uh, let's see. Oh, your life is different now than it was last time we spoke. Um, at least it's different insofar as the, who, the people who are employing you. And this was this was surprising to me, but it's but it's it's a thing that happened. Can I ask you about it? <laughs> it is a thing that happened. You can ask me about okay. it. Okay, so you were you were at SB Nation, and uh, now you're at Fox. That's those are facts. Um, <laughs> I'm assuming it has to do with uh, because listen, I've talked to Grant Brisby before. Grant Brisby was recently on this program. And Grant Brisby is a, just a huge ass. Grade A pain in the ass. <laughs> Grade A. I mean, I think uh, everyone knows that. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. and my sense is that it was just a question for you of working conditions, right? right. You yeah, had to get out from under the thumb and maybe all the nine other digits as well of, uh, or what, maybe 19 other digits? How many did, do, do toes count as digits? Toes are not digits. Toes are not digits. Okay. Um, yeah, the nine other digits of uh, Grant Brisby. Is that? I mean, is that? Is that fair? That's ninety-nine percent fair. Yeah. Okay. All right. What? How much do you want to say about w- why you left and why you're now with Fox? Um. How much do I want to say? Um. Well, I will say that the people at SB Nation were great. Um. Yeah, I literally got along amazingly well with everybody who worked works there or, and worked there when I was there. It's just uh, it was a really just a lot of really phenomenal people. That was the most difficult thing about leaving. Um, I will tell you that after the first year and a half or two years, it. I, I was discouraged by my inability to build a bigger audience mm-hmm. where I was. Um, and I think that I had been arrogant enough to think that a significant percentage of my readers at ESPN 
um, would just follow me over to SB Nation. And, you know, frankly, it didn't happen. Um, we started off real slow, and, it, it you know, it, it, it built. Absolutely, we get, uh, the audience got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, but even after a year and a half or two years, it, it wasn't um, as certainly wasn't as big as I or I'm sure many others had hoped. Um, uh, and it was hard for me to see a path forward where that was going to change. Really, it comes down to that. Um, um, and, uh, you know, I, I could have stayed. The people who run the company were very kind. Um, I, I never got the impression that um, my job was in any danger. Um, but at the same time, I didn't feel like we were making any real um, progress toward building a bigger audience. Um, you know, we lost Jeff Sullivan. Um, that was a that was a tough blow. Um, we didn't replace Jeff. Um, that was a tough blow for me personally and professionally. Um, and I think that we could have continued to cruise along, or I could have for years, and it would have been fine. It's a, it's a good company, a lot of exciting things happening, um, especially with the other sites that um, that we have going now. Box Media has going, but I didn't see the baseball coverage ever really ramping up. At least, and again. I'm maybe I'm not the most patient of fellows, right. but uh, maybe it would have happened someday. But and I probably I could easily have stayed there for a long time. Um, I wasn't actively looking for another job, but then the Fox thing just sort of popped up, and um, I looked at it. And I said, "Now this is some place where the audience could get bigger and bigger and bigger." Um, the uh, Fox had had not put a lot of effort into their website. Um, in recent years, and not on the baseball side, certainly not a lot of full-time people. Um, and uh, I got the impression that they do want to put a lot more effort into it. And part of that was hiring me, and, and we'll be doing some other things in the coming months. Um, and, uh, of course, there's the new TV network, FS1, and they're carrying more baseball games. And it just seemed like this is a, a place where I can I can find that audience. Because, you know, look, I'm, I am I... I want to have a lot more readers than I have now, um, uh, or ha- had at SB Nation. Um, that's lifeblood. You, you get addict- addicted to it after a while. You get addicted to the feedback and um, having people tell you that they enjoy your stuff when they see you. And um, there's certainly, it's you know, my your ego gets involved a little bit, and um, that's certainly a part of it too. Yeah, although um, I don't know, I don't know if, if the internet has changed because you've been on it for a while, but. You, you mentioned that you get addicted to those moments when people, you know, when you find that you're draw, growing an audience and when people will say, oh, his, uh, his work is great. But um, I don't know if you notice this on the Internet, though. Sometimes people will use that as a forum for telling you how much they hate you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's also Yeah, that common. happens. You know, I'll say when, when, when we started, when I started at SB Nation, we, did, we didn't get many comments at all. Um, positive or negative, um, and that the one thing that really went well was that we started to get more and more comments, and I really enjoy that, and I like to pop in and participate. Um, uh, there was really only one time uh, in my three years there when the when the comments were, I thought, truly ugly and and unfair to me, um, and I tried to engage with people and. Um, there, there are some issues 
typically not baseball issues, but social issues where people just don't have open minds at all. They've already made their mind up, and if you don't fall into the line with their opinion, then you're a bad guy. Um, and, you know, that's rough, but that happened once in three years, so I really can't complain too much. Um, you know, I learned a good lesson. I, I would probably do most of most everything the same. Uh, my eyes would just be a little more open the next time. Um, at at Fox, I've been amazed that we really don't have many people commenting, and uh, I'm not sure why that is. I don't know if it's because they haven't been encouraged to comment, or you know, I think our commenting system on a technical level um, could stand for some improvement. Um, and that's one of my priorities in the next few months is to to get more people commenting and to get better comments because I think that uh, I think that that's people love to engage in that way, but you've got to if people are going to come in and throw insults around, and that's happened a little bit already. Um, people won't come back. Right? Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's hard. You got It's hard to get those internet clicks, Rob. Meyer. <laughs> you should consider more slideshows then. Have you ever looked into that? Carson Sestui, I will never do a slideshow. I don't care. No, I don't know. I'm just being closed-minded <laughs> there. Uh, it's really just too much work. Yes. Also, I hate, I hate, I hate it when I click on the internet and, I, and I'm taken to a slideshow. It's a, I, I, I won't look at one. Yeah. Uh, and now, uh, do you are you allowed to uh, to spend time socially with Ken Rosenthal? Are you are you invited to spend time socially with Ken Rosenthal? Uh, I am. And Ken has been, Ken is one of the nice guys in the business. Mm-hmm. Um, just a, a little story. Uh, I think two years ago at spring training, I happened to see him and heard him, I just heard him sort of mentioning offhand he was going to go, go find some lunch somewhere. I just sort of invited myself along with him. I'd never talked to him. <laughs> um, I don't think I'd ever, I don't think I'd ever met him or talked to him. Um, certainly never spent any real time with him. And he just, he couldn't have been kinder. And we went and had a great lunch and talked about everything under the sun and, and uh, and then when um, I was considering this job, he um, he had me call him on the phone, and we talked for at length. And he's just a really good guy. Um, um, so one of the many things I'm looking forward to when I visit Arizona uh, for spring training uh, next week is spending some time with Ken Rosenthal. Yeah. Well, uh, I hope that one of the things you do next week in Arizona is spend time with Carson Sestouli too. Well, that's a given, isn't it? I hope so. We're gonna. I'm gonna be there. You're gonna. Well, you show up Saturday or something. You said Sunday. I get in late Saturday night, and I'll be there for a week. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm getting in Wednesday. So. Uh, I didn't. You went there last year, right? I went. Wait. Did you you say were there we, last year. I was there. Yeah, we, we had brunch last year. We had brunch. Where did we have brunch? We had a brunch. We had a brunch. At a, or maybe it was a late breakfast, uh, at a, there was like, there was like a restaurant that you'd been to, like, I think you'd been there like three or four times already. Oh, you mean the, the vegan place? Yeah. Yeah, I love that place. I'm going yeah. there with, uh, Jonah Carey next week, actually. Okay, well, there you go. And, and before that, we had been to, we had been to a real brunch at a fantastic place called Something Kitchen, Someone's Kitchen. Um, remember when we went there with Dane? Uh, Perry and we were late. Oh, that was in in Scottsdale. Yeah, that was the year before, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the year before. But we yeah. uh, we were late because Dane had to uh, <laughs> Dane had to evacuate. That was a fun that was a fun brunch. I remember yeah. that. that was, no, it was terrible. I saw that a, guy I saw, terrible. I saw a parrot right outside the restaurant. 
That was awesome. You saw a real parrot? Yeah. Is it is that a thing? Did it just escape from someone's house then? Uh, do you really want to know about this? I mean, is it sad? No. Oh yeah, I do want to know about this. <laughs> so a lot of southern, a lot of south southwestern cities have uh, resident populations of parakeets and parrots. They're typically descendants of birds that did escape. Yes. But they they wind up breeding and creating populations because the the climate is fine for them, right? Or a, or, it, or a little dry, maybe? Or exactly. Well, you know, believe it or not, you can, you can there's a monk parakeet colony. At least there was for a long time in in Brooklyn. So it doesn't even, doesn't even need to be that warm. But yeah, most of the parakeets and parrots you'll find in the Southwest or in Florida. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was yeah I was curious about that. Whether yeah, I bring that up because they're countable. Some of them. Right. Uh, and one last question. I'm in I'm in the United States now, but I'm going to be going back to Paris for three months and maybe do, visit some other places. Are there any Are there any birds that I should be on the lookout for in either France or I don't know? We're going to be down. We're going to go to Croatia maybe a little bit and end up in Berlin for a month. Wow, cool. I know nothing about birds in Europe except that in Sardinia or some damn place they shoot the hell out of them. All the birds. They just shoot a bird if they see it. If they see any bird, they will shoot it, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, I could tell uh, you... Um, oh, wait, where is... If you, uh, if you ever see that movie, uh, you ever see Winged Migration? There's some European birds in there. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've seen that before. That's where... Wait, is that the one where they got the like the special glider that they can float alongside? Yeah, you never see the glider in the, in the actual movie, but if you watch the documentary about the making of the movie, you get to see the glider. Well, they're not gliders. They're um, uh, ultralights. Okay. Yeah, actually, reasons. that's that's the best type of documentary to make. We get two documentaries from one because it, <laughs> it's like uh, what was Bur- Burden of Dreams, right? Burden of Dreams was the making. This was a documentary about the making of Fitzcarraldo, right? And so that's a. Uh, well, Fitzcarraldo isn't a documentary. Yeah, right. Okay, fine. Fitzcarraldo is a feature-length that's film. A bad example. But but my point is that you got two two movies out of it. You got two, two movies out, out of the production. Well, yeah, another great that's that those two. Like if you, if you see Fitzcarraldo, you have to see the movie about the making of Fitzcarraldo. Yeah, it's it's non negotiable. I actually saw Burden of Dreams first, and but it did not affect my pleasure of Fitzcarraldo whatsoever. In fact, it maybe only uh, improved it. They're both so amazing yeah. that you're right. You could see them independently. Or in whichever order, it doesn't matter. Another great one like that is uh, uh, Hearts of Darkness, which is about um, um, Apocalypse Now, an outstanding documentary about a movie. Mm-hmm. And there are others. Yeah, there are others. There are there are others. You're true. That's true. <laughs> but those are two of them. Yeah, right. Well, three of them. Three. Winged, right. The Winged Migration one, too. Right. But that's a step, separate category. It's a documentary about a documentary. Yeah. Okay. Fine. It's a. It's a. It's a. It's a film that. It's two films that people would see. Right. Yes. Okay. Is that. We can agree with that. All right. You're done. You've uh, satisfied everything here. Uh, well. Let's, so let's say goodbye. But stick around for a second. I thought we just barely got into things. What do you want me to do? What do you? You want me to d- d- delete what I just said and we'll get. No, it's fine. Is there but anything you need I, to say before we next go? Time I'll send, next time I'll come up with a bunch of questions and send them to you first. Questions you should be asked? Yeah. Let me ask you this. Do you have uh, – is there anyone in your family who's who's weird? You got any weirdos? <laughs> uh, 
Because I, I just had an, I had an interaction with a family member. Yep. A family member whom I love. Um, this family member though has gotten a little bit weird. Yep. And <clears throat> I don't know what to do about it. I, I love this family member, but, uh, things changed. I don't know precisely when, but I know that compared to, you know, three to five years ago, this person has changed. What on earth could one do? What on earth could one do? What do you mean? Talk, I talk about it. You mean like talk to the person and say, why are you so weird lately? Yeah. Uh, I mean, no, I, you don't just say that because everyone yeah. is pretty weird. Right. But sometimes people do things where you're like, hey, that's kind of like weirder than before. Or you're weird uh, in a different way that I wasn't used to. I think if it's, if it, is it, is it out of bounds? Like, uh, inappropriate? Um, where, to the point where, where your relationship is damaged now? Uh, not damaged, but there's a, there's more dis, there's more distance. Does that make sense? It does. It makes perfect sense. Okay. I have to be really vague about it because, you know, so many people listen to this podcast <laughs> that it's, uh, that it could be, but it's not, it's not a situation. I'm not pointing any fingers if that's clear, but it's just, you know, I'm just a little bummed out. But do you have, right. have you ever had any situation in your in your family or among friends? You're just like, oh, this person's different. I have, and I just um, I just avoid those people. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, it's true. You know, sometimes because really, essentially, personality is just. And by the way, I have I don't actually know this for a fact, but I'm going to say it with great conviction. Personality is just like a – it's just this ongoing narrative, right? Like you wake up every day and you're like, this is the person I have been. Plus it's probably also a function of neurochemistry at some level, right? And also whatever relationships you've established with people in your life. But I guess if something happened, if there was – there could be there could be experiences that cause like a break, a bit of a break, a kind of like a – it you know, deletes or rearranges some of that narrative that you – that you persist in, uh, you know, keeping up. Yeah, for sure. I've gone through one of those. Situ- I've gone through a situation where I had a break. You had um, a break. I had a break. Yes. And 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 it 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 in a, in a I guess in a, in a certain way it it changed the narrative that you provided for yourself. Um. It it changed. Yes. It changed the narrative that I thought I was comfortable with, and and slightly. Um, I've never had a break, and I don't think very many people have breaks that completely change the narrative. Yeah. That probably takes like a head injury or something. But yeah, my wiring got changed up a little bit uh, a few years ago, um, and I think I slowly reverted back to mostly what the wiring had been before. But but some of it stuck, and it's really interesting to to, to observe if you're able to do that. Yeah, sometimes it's hard. To- Especially if you're going through an experience, it's hard to be objective about it. But right, uh, yeah, you can. You, time is good uh, for those sorts of things. That's the other thing too is time. Time does a lot. Uh, you know, things that uh, I was torn up about. I remember I got uh, in high school. Uh, my girlfriend dumped me really hard, and I was like, I mean, this is you know, high school people. You know, you have a lot of feelings in high school, but. Uh, I thought I was gonna, I thought I was irreparably damaged, <laughs> you know. But I see this person now, and I say, "Oh, yeah, how you doing?" Yes. Yeah. 
Life is a strange place. So, or was that the question you wanted me to ask? <laughs> is that, did we hit it? You know, that might have been in the top ten if I'd been making a list. So well done. I don't know. Nyer, next time, yeah, fine. Next time you, yeah, you prepare a list of questions that Rob Nyer needs to be asked. And uh, we'll get them. Oh, I did have one other question for you, which was, are you an angry young man? Were you an angry young man, and are you still an angry young man? Or are you a different aged angry man now? Or are you not angry? Uh, I've never been angry. You're not angry? No. No. What's the point? I don't know. I mean, you can say that. Who who are you going to be angry at? Uh, That people are not, people not falling into line the way that you want them to. I mean, that, look. Do, do I ever get angry at people not doing what I want them to do? Of course. But uh, when I when I one thing that ke- that helps me avoid being angry is to not follow politics. That's the number one key for me. Um, not that I don't follow them at all, but uh, I'm a much less angry person. Uh, the, 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 the less I follow politics and listen to those discussions, um, the less angry I get. You know, it's funny. People always say, we need to be informed, right? Mm-hmm. Listen to NPR. You need to be, you know what's going on in Washington, D.C. Really? I'm not convinced that we do need to know. I think it's good that somebody knows, but <laughs> as an individual who can't really do anything about it except vote every couple of years, yeah. um, maybe contribute a few shekels to a political campaign, um, look, we're we're probably going to try to repeal the uh, uh, discriminatory uh, policy against gay marriage in this state probably in the next year or two. In and, Oregon, you know, in Oregon, in Oregon. I'm sorry, yeah, in Oregon. Um, you know, people think, oh, Oregon's a liberal. Well, five or six years ago, an anti-gay marriage amendment passed with with some ease. Mm-hmm. It would not pass today, as, as, as probably everybody listening knows. Public opinion has shifted quite a bit in this country. Um, I recently saw that in Kansas, 44% of the uh, respondents to a poll were in favor of gay marriage. I mean, it's wild how quickly it's, that's happened. Well, that's, um, isn't that aligned or correlated pretty closely to age, typically? Um, it is. Yes, it, it, well, it is, but... The, the demographics haven't changed that much in the last five years. Um, there haven't been enough young people becoming voters in the last five years. Um, that's partly it, a lot of, but a big part of it is just people becoming more used to the idea. Right, right. Um, uh, just, you know, this, exactly the same thing happened with uh, uh, mixed racial marriages 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, Anyway, there will be a campaign here in a year or two, and um, if it looks like it's going to be close, I'll probably send a hundred bucks or whatever to the because it makes me feel good. But, but um, you know, we have so little ability to, to really change any of these things. And reading the Daily Coast every day, which is a fantastic website, a great blog, amazingly well done. But when I read that sort of thing or watch MSNBC. First of all, it's incredibly one-sided. And second, <laughs> it just gets me agitated. Why would I want to get agitated and get angry at people? It doesn't. For some people, that's probably a good thing. For me, it's not. Right. Um, so, am I angry? No, I'm not angry. Um, 
I get angry very rarely these days, which is really a good place to be. I do, uh, yeah, and I would also argue that there's somewhere in between the, the idea of staying informed and uh, saturating oneself in sort of like minute-by-minute uh, updates on this or that, uh, potentially not actually, you know, like very relevant policy, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that look, I love history. I love reading about history, and in, in a sense, whatever happens today it's history, right? Mm-hmm. So I do want to be informed. Um, but, yeah, you're right, the minute-to-minute stuff. You know, look, when I, uh, when I hear uh, Mitch McConnell speak, it, it, the, I have a visceral reaction. Um, and it's not, it's not productive for anyone. It doesn't make me happy. It doesn't make Mitch McConnell happy. It doesn't make anybody happy. So I'm better off if I just turn the radio off when I think Mitch McConnell's about to be, you know, interviewed on NPR or wherever it is. Um, and n- nothing against Mitch McConnell. Um, it, you know, it's it's a, it's a weakness within me that has that visceral reaction. What I should be, what I would like to be able to do is hear him speak and think, that's interesting history. There's a, a, a national political figure uh, doing what those sorts of people do. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, my how interesting this is, but that, that's not how I react, respond to it. So it's better if I give it some distance. And you know, in, in ten years, I'll read a book about politics in the in twenty fourteen, and it'll probably be interesting. But um, it's, I'm too close to that sort of stuff now. So um, and I, I don't have the distance. I, I I I'm jealous of people who are able to maintain a sort of skeptical or or cynical distance from what's happening at that moment, and I'm just not very good at it. Yeah. Okay, we've hit the hour mark now. Was that it? Uh, is that sufficient? Uh, what's the record? I don't know, actually. It's probably a, 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 a an interview or a conversation with Dane Perry. Those those have gone on before. Well, I'll have to listen to one of those so I can get some tips. Uh, yeah, it's mostly because not, um, Dane is fascinating because he's broken on the inside. <laughs> you know, um, but in a way that that's very amusing. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Okay. What's your favorite non-sports podcast? My favorite non-sports podcast. Yep. Um, I will tell you a couple things. I think that there are. I don't know if there's any one that I uh, feel entirely satisfied listening to every episode. So that's the first answer. Okay. Um, I do find that there are a couple of comedy podcasts. Um, yep. WTF Pod with uh, yep. Mark Maron. Mark Maron. Sure. Okay, you know this one. And also, yep. um, You Made It Weird. You uh, Made It Weird? You Made It Weird, which is a, which is hosted by um, Pete Holmes, who's a comedian. I've never heard of any of those things. Well, it's a fact, and it's uh, something you can find on the Internet. And it's, it's, it's similar to WTF. Uh, I would say. I mean, it's the different personality, which yep. is a big part of that, but the format's yep. similar. And yep. they're long-form interviews with comedians is the idea. Got it. Okay. Um, I also will enjoy sometimes um, uh, the, uh, this p- podcast hosted by Melvin Bragg um, of the D- BBC, who hosts uh, In Our Time, which is a sort of uh, – he'll get three – he'll have a panel, a small panel of three – um, academics usually at a yeah. British or 
American University. Are you familiar with this one, In Our Time? I've never heard it. Oh, okay. I'm writing it down. I'm stocking up. And, uh, yeah, so they'll just have, like, let's see, the last In Our Time with Melvin Bragg. The last one was about, uh, what did I hear recently? Uh, oh, this isn't helpful. This is, uh, oh, yeah, here we go, episodes. So the last one I heard, oh, it was like, cool. oh, yeah, here we go. Spartacus, for example, is the, is the last, is the most recent one. There's also Chivalry, the history of chivalry. Hmm. Uh, Plato's Symposium, an hour-long conversation about Plato's Symposium. That's pretty great, right? Interesting, yes. Yeah, Absolutely. so it gets, it gets uh, essentially three professors together, and he goes and back and forth, and they talk about it. They kind of develop a narrative around it, and, you know, it's smart. You get to hear smart, you smile, you feel smart too because they're British usually. So. Right, 10% extra bump for IQ. Yeah, you get, yeah, so you feel good about that. Yep. I would say those are probably my top jams. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but of course, you know, uh, there's some, uh, there's obviously some very good, uh, uh, This American Lives and Radio Labs. Those are all yep. really good, you know, and yep. uh, I, I certainly, a good, a good episode of Fresh Air, I'm not immune to the charms of that. No, who is? I don't know. Mitch Someone. McConnell. <laughs> I also love Fangraphs Audio. That's a big one for me. Heck yeah. Yeah, I spent a lot of time with that one. I had listened to a lot of them in real time. <laughs> yeah. Can I throw you a podcast? Yeah, what do you got? Jeff Garland. Oh, really? Yep. And it's good? Yep. Okay. Jeff Garland's a super guy. Have you listened to any good... Is there one in in particular? The Jeff Garland podcast? Yeah, yeah, any episode in particular. Um, you know, I, I'd like to all the ones I've listened to because I've been very selective, maybe, because mm-hmm. um, I've probably heard four of the 20 or whatever. Yeah. Um, I would say uh, the one that has made me the happiest so far, and I haven't listened to Sarah Silverman yet, that's next on the list, but uh, Baba Odenkirk was... Uh, oh, okay, was, good, yeah. Tremendous. Okay. I believe you. Um, yeah, and then there's Comedy Bang Bang, of course. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with them too. Did you listen to the Carl Reiner episode of WTF? I did. That's a fantastic one. Yes. Because one of the difficult things about Mark Maron sometimes is if he's feeling very comfortable with a guest or older than a guest, is he can get, he gets into like this, uh, he has this sort of like angry West Coast <laughs> mode he gets into sometimes uh but um with carl reiner and the, the other one with mel brooks he had to be very polite or more right. polite more reverent and i think it actually suits suits him um and uh, that made it pleasant uh i, I think that's right uh, did you ever hear the jonathan winters one yes i also heard that one that was a, that was a genius one yeah, it's, I like the ones where Marin genuflects a little bit because otherwise he can sort of take over the conversation. Right. And, you know, with Carl Reiner or Mel Brooks or somebody, I don't really care. In that moment, I couldn't care less about Mark Marin as much yeah. as I love the guy. Yeah, right. And I've seen his stand-up act twice, and he's phenomenal, and I was part of the act once, and that was a ton of fun. But, you know, Carl Reiner, you just want – all you want is Carl Reiner in that situation. Right. And that's pretty much what he gave us. So, um, right. oh, I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. There are times when you should uh, get get out of the way. Yep. Yeah. As you know, being a pro. <laughs> no, I'm not very good at that. All right, let's stop. We're stopping now. Okay. All right, but stay, stick around for a second. Okay.
But for the purposes, we'll say thank you, Rob Nyer. Thank All right, you. Thank you. Thank you. I always really. If I haven't been clear about this to everybody, well, I have been to you, but I I, I love doing it. So anytime. Okay, great. That has been Rob Nyer of uh, Fox Fox Sports. Fox Sports, yeah, Fox Sports. Okay, that's Rob Nyer of Fox Sports. Uh, I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. All right, dude.